0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we come this morning uh, so thankful that we could be in your presence with your people once again this day. Oh Lord, it is truly something to look forward to, to gather with your people and to worship and to praise you corporately. We pray now as we do so that you would speak to us through your word. God, we need you. We need you to hear from you and we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives uh, individually but also corporately as well we thank you and pray these things in your name amen well the the Thanksgiving season is over and you know sometimes doesn't it seem like uh, the turkeys and the stuffing's barely back in the refrigerator Uh, before we pull out the Christmas music and the Christmas decorations and we move right on to Christmas. And it might even sort of seem that way for us even here at the church because last Sunday we were talking about contentment and Thanksgiving and and this week we're sort of moving the focus and the shift to that of of Advent. But I would suggest to you that it's not only uh, natural to do that, but I think it's necessary and good to do so as well. You know, because what do we as Christians have to be more thankful for than the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And so uh, as we uh, come, I want us to to not just approach this uh, Christmas season to understanding, you know, looking at these stories again and trying to find something new that we've never heard before. But instead, I want us to reflect on that which we already know and to be reminded of certain things. I think it's good that like Mary, Jesus' mother, you know, who was said of her that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, You know, that like her, I pray that that may be our attitude as we come, that we might treasure Christ, that we might ponder and reflect on that which we have, that we know from his word and that we have experienced as we have walked with him uh, in our lives. And so to help us to do that this Advent season, we're going to be looking at Christ in the Old Testament. And I've entitled this series uh, Christmas Before Advent. Uh, Christmas before Advent, a look of Christ in the Old Testament, and so to do that this morning, I want to just go jump right into Genesis 3. I thought we might as well start at the beginning and and look at this. Now, as as you know from uh, what we read this morning and from probably your time in Sunday school and church growing up, uh, that you know it's, this is very familiar to us. That Eve took uh, that she was tempted by Satan. Uh, to eat of the forbidden fruit and that Adam was right there with her and he advocated his responsibility as the spiritual leader of, of his house. And instead of immediately crushing the serpent's head, he allowed Satan to speak these lies into his wife's ear. And then with the slightest prompting from her, then he followed her leadership in eating the fruit um, that God had forbidden them to eat. And swiftly the day of reckoning arrived as, as God appears in the scene in essence here and God comes to our first parents in the garden although they hid themselves. And, and nevertheless with just a few probing questions the Lord drew out of them uh, the confession of what they had done. And we read in verses 12 and 13 where the man said, the woman whom you gave To be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So once God exposes the facts, you know, we see him here sort of shifting roles. He sort of, God goes from that of being prosecuting attorney and uh, drawing out the facts to where he steps then behind the bench and he now becomes judge. To them, and he pronounces three curses, three words of divine judgment upon them. First of all, we see in verses 14 and 15 where he pronounces judgment upon the serpent, or upon Satan, and then verse 16 upon Eve, and then finally Adam in verses 17 to 19. But notice that word "curse" here that he uses several times, 14, and in verse 17. Um, and that's the nature of the judgment that was pronounced upon the serpent and on Adam and Eve. He curses humanity and the world in which we live. And that's what I, why I liked and I wanted to use what we did from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where it talks about the nature of the curse, and it describes it as the estate of sin and min- misery into which we've all fallen in the wake of Adam's first transgression, and so we see here that, first of all, the serpent is is humiliated. He is told that, that he is going to um, now eat the dust of the earth. He's going to, to be on his belly, which was really very much a position of utter defeat and humiliation. That the woman was going to have pains in childbirth, but not only that... But she will have to endure the constant fracturing of her most intimate relationship, that with her husband, where it says that her desire will be for her husband and he shall rule over her. But there will always be that that, that tension there between the two. And then with the man that, of course, uh, the labor that God had given to him, which was to be good, it was part of God's creation, now becomes a burden and a source of terrible weariness for the man. And then finally... We read in verse 19, uh, for dust we are and to dust we shall return, which sort of reminds us of what Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. It's both spiritual death, but also physical death as well. And so it makes sense that God as judge, would pronounce his judgment upon Satan and upon our first parents. But what's shocking, as as I was reading this text, is verse 15. Right in the middle of God's judgment there, there shines a note of, of bright hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I want us to see three things from this verse today. First of all, I want us to see the grace of enmity. Okay, enmity, for the kids that may not know, enmity means hostility, okay? So the grace of enmity, the grace of victory, and the grace of a sure outcome. So the grace of enmity, the grace of victory, and the grace of a sure outcome. So first of all, the grace of enmity. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, that enmity could mean hostility. Another word would be animosity, hatred. And I know as we look at that word, we see that it is something that's very bad, something that we need to avoid. But in this case, that's not so much the case. So first of all, I want to talk about that enmity, that, that battle that, that, is the, that uh, Moses is describing here. He says from, from this point forward we see that all of humanity is really divided into two camps or, or two, uh, two spiritual lines. You have those who are the seed or the offspring of the woman, those who are in Christ, and those who are the seed of Satan who belong to their father the devil as John 8 44 puts it. And and I think it was the Puritans who used this uh, illustration. If not, somebody can correct me afterwards. But I've heard this illustration and I think it just is well put that really all there's like two giants and there's and these two giants have a belt on them and around their belt are these little hooks. And every person from humanity is placed on one of these hooks. And one giant represents who we are in Christ. It represents Christ. But the other giant represents those who are the devil or those who are not in Christ. And so there's no sense in which anybody is in between. You are either with Christ or you are against Him. You either belong to Him or or not. And so there's no really in between. And God is letting us see that He has established human history as one long record of spiritual conflict, of one long irreconcilable war that 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 happens and between these two groups God says that there will be unending hostility between the world and the church between the kingdom of uh, God and the kingdom of Satan Um, and we see that throughout scripture I mean think about Cain and Abel that was enmity that was hostility Noah being mocked and rejected by those that were part of his generation as he built the ark that was enmity Jacob and Esau, or Isaac and Ishmael, or Israel and the nations, the church and the world, all of that is enmity or warfare or conflict. And as a Christian, we are a combatant on the front lines of this cosmic war that is going on because we belong to Jesus Christ. And this isn't just some abstract conflict that's like out there in the cosmos that the angels and and the demons are fighting and then we're just down here on earth. But this conflict is part of our everyday life. And I know it took me a long time as, as I read the book of Ephesians and I never really understood why Ephesians 6 followed Ephesians 5 until uh, I think it might have even been before I was in seminary, before I really grasped this, that the spiritual conflict that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6 really works itself out in our everyday lives in the relationship that he describes in chapter 5. So the relationship between husbands and wives, relationship between parents and children and, and masters and slaves, that that, that that war, that conflict, that spiritual battle is, is something that occurs in, in our everyday lives. And so uh, as, as we come this holiday season, we need to be reminded that there is a war and that we must never forget to cultivate sort of that warlike mindset. And I think that's hard for us as American Christians. You know, if we lived in the Middle East, that might be different. In the Middle East, you know, the, the existence of everybody is, uh, or of uh, people, are things like car bombings and people strapping bombs to their chest and walking into public places and, and, and uh, skirmishes between different factions and gunfire. Little kids grow up hearing the bombs explode in the middle of the night, and warfare is just part of their existence. But, brothers and sisters, we live in America and at least for yet still there still seems to be a time of of fair prosperity and i'll say peace i'll use that word loosely peace and you know a sense of uh, that everything is okay but the the reality is that that uh, that's not true in the spiritual realm that in the spiritual realm there is a warfare going on. But I think because our culture has done such a good job of sort of downplaying this whole idea that, there is this, that the spiritual world is a part of our reality, even we as Christians can sort of forget that that spiritual world of conflict that is going on is living itself out in our everyday lives. And even as we sometimes feel, I think, the tension of that spiritual warfare, that is going on. We we know that it exists sort of subconsciously. And I think for some of us we might even be tempted to try to bring order and peace to our lives, you know, in the midst of a fallen world where there is this conflict, and we forget what the Bible says that the weapons that we have are not carnal that as Christians, that God has given us weapons that are spiritual, and those weapons, such as the word of God and prayer and things like that, may not make sense to us as we live in this world, and sometimes may even seem a little cumbersome, but as we live in the, and we understand that spiritual battle that is going on, and the need for the spiritual weapons, it makes more sense, and I think sometimes we're even tempted, even in the church, to look to the earthly carnal weapons to solve spiritual problems. And I just think about maybe uh, parents who struggle with a child. and and you know they're they're just having trouble with one of their children. And so what do they do? They run to the latest, you know parenting guru to you know say, "Hey, help me with my child." And that's not necessarily bad as you're reading Christian books and 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 hearing what godly men and godly women have to say about such things as this. But I oftentimes, too, though, wonder how much we neglect just getting down on our knees and praying to God and asking him to work in the hearts of our children that are struggling. You know, to understand that we we need God to work because we are in a spiritual battle and he has given us weapons that are great and mighty. The point is, is that the conflict in our lives ought to remind us that there's something bigger that's going on than just us. And rather than trying to escape sort of that awkwardness we feel in our lives by being part of a war zone, we should acknowledge that reality and we should act accordingly. But I also want us to see not only that battle that comes because of that enmity, but I want us to see God's grace in that battle as well. Because there is a sense in which the hostility is an expression of God's grace. You know, when Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works in Genesis 3, and God stood before them as judge, justice would have demanded that he would destroy them. So in verses 14 through 19, when God passes judgment on Satan and our first parents, it made sense. Well, like I said before, what was shocking was right in the middle in verse 15, that God shines a note of hope. And that hope partly is of that enmity that's there. You know, th- this had to take Satan by surprise, you know, to, to hear these words that God says that he's going to put enmity between Satan and the woman. As far as the devil was concerned, he had won the victory by tempting God's vice regents, his creation, his a- Adam and Eve, the, the-, the federal head, Adam of all humanity, that he had tempted him to rebel against God. So humanity is now in Satan's grasp. That had to be the way that Satan was thinking, But the, because the devil knows that Adam is the federal head of humanity. So when Adam falls into sin and in rebellion against God, the human race falls. So now the human race has become a part of Satan's army in this war against God. I mean, that's the context of, of this verse that we read. But what the devil did not count on was what God said in verse 15, namely that he would put enmity or the hostility between Satan and the woman. Notice that God is the one who takes initiative here, as He always does in our redemption. God is the one that takes initiative. It doesn't just simply appear or happen You know, this sense of this outworking of uh, enmity or hostility, God put that enmity there as well. And so God creates a line of humanity from the woman who hates the devil and the works of the devil. And God needs to do this because by our nature, by our sinful nature, our hearts love sin. Amen? They do. We love what is evil, but God is giving us and showing us that he is going to preserve a people for himself who is eager to do good. And if you're a Christian, you can testify that. You can testify to the fact that the way that you used to view sin is much different than you view sin now. That at one, you know, that I know we all still struggle with sin. I know we are all tempted. And and nobody works or walks in you know in perfection, and we won't here upon this earth. But even though we still struggle with sin, our desire is to be sinless. Our desire is to be obedient to our Lord and our Savior, and we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and and causing us to be more and more that way, to walk more and more into righteousness. That's what's known as sanctification. If you are a, profess to be a Christian, and you find that your attitude towards sin has not changed in 10 years, then something's wrong, brothers and sisters. But if you have a growing desire and a distaste, a growing desire to walk in obedience and a distaste for sin, then that is simply the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that is evidence of God's work in us and that enmity that he put between Satan and the woman and their offspring. So God comes with His grace of enmity. God doesn't give up on the human race, but rather takes the initiative towards saving His people. And it's easy for us to acknowledge that spiritual battle that occurs in our daily lives and grow weary in that battle. Brothers and sisters, the hostility that we experience in our lives each day is a reminder of God's grace that He did not give mankind what He deserved when Adam and Eve Um, sided with Satan in rebellion against God. Instead, he gave the gospel promise of a savior. And that brings us to our second point, that we see the grace of victory. Uh, Notice what he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, um, notice that this enmity is not simply a gentle animosity, but a battle to the death. I like the way that uh, Austin Brown describes it. He says this enmity isn't of a casual sort as if the citizens of each kingdom are at a ball game rooting for a different team. The antipathy and opposition would be nothing less than absolute resulting in the shedding of blood and even the taking of life. It is warlike hostility. And, And at the heart of this age old conflict between Satan's offspring, and the offspring of the woman was the prediction that the ultimate conflict would happen between one individual and Satan. We see that as we look at verse 15, and it says that he shall bruise your head. That is one person singular. And so the Jews were constantly looking for that person, you know, that Messiah. And even we see in chapter four that Eve was excited when she gave birth to a man but then she found quickly that, that that baby would not be the Messiah as Cain killed his brother Abel and showed that he was really of the line of Satan, that he was the offspring of Satan. But we do see, though, that the coming Messiah comes in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4:4 we read, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, John, in 1 John 3, 8, Talks about why Jesus came. He said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if you take that with what we read in Genesis 3:15, that He came to bruise the head of the serpent, and we understand that that word "bruised" can mean crushed, then we have to look at this verse this way: that to be crushed in your heel. It's very painful, right? If you you crush your heel, that's going to hurt. However, to crush your head is fatal. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did to the work of the devil. Jesus came to earth as a baby and he lived on this earth until the time was right. And at 30 years of age, he begins his ministry and he's baptized. And Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter four, verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And there the devil throws everything he has at Jesus Christ. You know, he attacks every point of Jesus' ministry. Everything that the Father has given to the Son to do and to accomplish, Satan offers him a counterfeit to that that would be easy, that would not cause Jesus to have to go through all the pain and the suffering that he has gone through. Okay, so Satan throws everything he has at Jesus and Jesus simply refutes the devil with the word of God. Until finally, in Matthew 4:10, Jesus says to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so unlike the first Adam, Jesus defeats Satan having won the victory then Jesus goes on to destroy Satan in plain sight he begins to heal the sick he casts out demons he raises the dead he publicly lets people know what he is all about but Jesus also takes on the offspring of the devil when he speaks to the Pharisees and he calls them a brood of vipers and he says that they are like the father of, like their father the devil who is a murderer and a liar and then Jesus goes on to the cross where he satisfies the law and fulfills all righteousness. He bore our sin and made atonement for it by the sacrifice of his body. He laid down his soul in death. This innocent man bore our sin so that we would be set free. And as Paul states, and turn to Colossians chapter two. I want you to see this. Colossians 2 Paul begins to, to unpack this a little bit and share with us what Christ has done. And Paul sort of states in, in chapter 2, verse 13, how Jesus silenced the law and how there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul talks about in Romans 8.1. You know, because the law, as it comes to bear upon us, as we look at our lives, we stand guilty before God. Because we know that we have done many things to break the law of God. But Christ silenced that law only because His righteousness that He accomplished as He lived a perfect life here upon this earth was imputed to us. And so as the law looks at us, while we see this whole line of our sins that are before us and that Satan gladly condemns us of and reminds us of, the law cannot accuse us because what we are clothed with is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, we read that he, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, he disarms them, he disarms Satan. You know, and the weapons that Satan uses are things like temptation. Uh, accusation against us, condemnation, all these things. But now Satan can no longer use these weapons against us because we stand righteous in Jesus Christ. But I know it is so easy, even as Christians, for us to wrestle with these things and to still feel the guilt and the condemnation and the shame of our sin. But I am here to remind you, but that's not who you are as a child of God, that Jesus Christ has won the victory. Jesus took the weapons away from the devil by his death on the cross. So when Jesus said that it is finished, he was raising that flag of victory. Jesus had accomplished salvation for his people and Satan's head was crushed. The devil was a defeated foe. And so Jesus is the second and the better Adam. I guess the way we would say it today in our terminology is Jesus is Adam 2.0. You know, I don't know. But what Adam should have done when the serpent came to tempt his wife, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. Now, you might remember that when uh, God stood before Adam, like that prosecuting attorney, and he was, you know, drawing out from Adam that confession of the sin that he had committed, uh, Adam still tried to deflect God and he sought to defend himself. He tried to dodge the accusations of his own sin. He tried to blame shift, if he would, to his wife. And so the first Adam says, in essence, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the forbidden fruit to eat and I ate it. It's not my fault, it's her fault. In essence, what he was saying is, she's a guilty one, condemn her, let me live. But Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, he says to God, though they are in fact guilty, condemned me and let them live. That is the hope that our Savior gives to us as the second Adam, which that brings us then To the third point, and that is the sure the grace of the sure outcome that we have as children of God. Even though Jesus strikes that fatal blow to the devil, still the battle rages on. I mean, we feel that every day in our lives. In the same way that Jesus' heel was bruised, so God's people still possess the marks of belonging to him. And if you're still in Colossians, turn over to chapter 1, verse 24. Paul talks about that as well in his life. He says, Um, In Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now, Paul was not saying that Christ didn't suffer enough, and so he had to suffer to make up for Christ's sacrifice. What Paul is saying is that when he was stoned, and when he was shipwrecked, and when he was suffering for the sake of Christ, that he was showing who he belonged to and who he was following. Paul says that I am engaged in his cause the way that that Christ was engaged with it with suffering and that is his children that's what we do so bruising continues even today God's people suffer some of you even here today may be suffering maybe even deeply And while you look good on the outside, on the inside, you are hurting very much. And that's because we wage war against principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. But let us not lose heart. We know that it is through faith that that we stand. It is through faith that we conquer and that we overcome as we trust in our Lord and Savior in the midst of this battle. Look, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 32, the writer of Hebrews talks about this overcoming. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. There are times that we will go through as Christians um, of great struggle and heartache and sorrow, and we'll have no idea why God is doing this in our lives. And for us, we might look at these things and we can't understand how anything good could come out of these circumstances. It is in those times in the heat of the battle that God is calling us to rest in Him, to trust in Him, to have faith in Him. The end is coming when the war will be over. And that's what we read in Revelation. If you wanna look once again to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 12, I just wanna read Two verses, verses 10 and 11, that we already read. Revelation 12:10. And John said, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down Who accuses them day and night before God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now, notice what he says that they have conquered him. They haven't conquered the devil on their own, but they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, which is the word of God. They loved Jesus more even than their own lives, more than they loved their dreams, more than they loved uh, their families, more than they loved anything else. They loved Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, they gave to him all that they had and said, Lord, use this as you would. Sort of reminds me of a, a, a young man by the name of John Williams. He was a man in his early 20s. He was married and he decided that uh, he should be a missionary in the Pacific Islands. So he and his wife went to the mission field and they served there for for many years and, and they planted a church on one of the islands there. And then one day uh, John Williams heard about a, a nearby island where the people were known to be very fierce and so he and, a, and another man went to that island where they went to share Christ. Well, they landed on that island And they lived for about 30 minutes before the cannibals there beat them to death and then cannibalized them. I guess that's the right term to say cannibalize them. But uh, anyway, the people on the ship saw what happened and they went back to their home and they told the church there that had been planted of what had happened to these missionaries. And 108 people decided to take up John Williams' cause. And so these people went to that island and they shared Christ, the Lord was gracious, allowed them to plant a church and it grew and it thrived because two men did not love their lives more than death. And by faith in Jesus Christ, Satan was conquered and that's the battle that we see. I want us to see that the outcome, our outcome is secure that Jesus Christ has already won the victory and while the war still goes on the victory has already been accomplished. Listen to the words of Romans 16:20. This is a great benediction by the way. But Romans 16:20 says, "The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all." Romans 16:20. And so we fight this battle And it's hard and it's long, and sometimes it's very disappointing, and oftentimes it's very heartbreaking. But we have this absolute confidence that the God of peace will, will soon crush Satan under your feet, under my feet. You will one day, we will one day stand in victory before our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He has allowed us to participate in this battle. And while God is the one who receives the glory and the honor, we have been promised to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Amen. That is a great victory. But now we live in the war zone. It's a war zone where the outcome has been determined in Christ, but still it's a war zone nonetheless. And I just want to encourage you as we live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for us not to be a people that compromises, for us not to be a people that are discouraged. I think for the American church, for a long time the church has had some um, influence, and here again I use that word loosely, influence upon the culture. And unfortunately, the church has turned to politics. And there's been a sense in which the church has enjoyed sort of a time where people have, you know, even in the culture, even people who are not Christian would at least tolerate and function by Christian values and stuff. But those times are changing. And and I see more and more young people who are growing up and are even... Young people in the church buying into more of the ways of the world and saying, now, why exactly is it wrong to to cohabitate with your boyfriend or or your girlfriend? Or, you know, what is wrong with same sex attraction or, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think that oftentimes, you know, because we are so used to sort of having that privileged position with the world that we sort of forget that actually there's built-in enmity that God has placed there, that there is tension, and that the world won't love us. And for us to 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 sort of cuddle up and to love the world, the Bible tells us is enmity or hostility with God. And so we are in Christ or we are in Satan. And there will be, and we must expect that, hostility. So let us not be ashamed of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to belong to him and stand with those that you know maybe at work or a neighbor or maybe it's in your even in your family Uh, maybe stand with those who are being mocked for the sake of Christ when somebody is standing up and and being a witness and everybody else is against them don't stand in the background and say nothing stand for the truth stand for what pleases God no matter what the world may say Brothers and sisters, let us not trade our relationship with Christ like Adam traded his relationship with Eve. Let us not buy into the ways of the devil and let us not try to play both sides of the fence. God has given us the grace of enmity that we would know that as we are in the battle, that God that we are on God's side, that He has saved us, that He has given us the victory, and that victory is a sure hope that one day we will experience, even though for a while we will be in war. Let's bow our heads and and stop and meditate upon the word that we have heard today. Our Father, we thank You so much as we come to the end of sitting at Your feet, we, we pray that the words that we have heard would encourage those who are weary and tired and broken hearted. Lord, uh, there are many ways I know that I think of my own life and how uh, deadened and asleep I am, even to this battle. We pray that you would give us a heightened sense of awareness of, of the work that you are doing in this world, even in, in the, the spiritual realm. Lord and, and uh, Father, we pray that we would Uh, Live as people who are using spiritual weapons, not carnal weapons, as we live our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us a great boldness as your church as we uh, think about uh, these things and, and our place and position in the world. Let us not be timid. Let us not be just uh, living out the status quo of what we think. But I pray that you would lift our, our thinking and our understanding uh, to, to, the, to hear the revelation that you had given us. Take the blinders off, O oh God, that we might be even aggressive, Lord, in terms of sharing Christ with others. Uh, Lord, uh, we just thank you, and we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.